Hello, my name is Glenn Freeman and I'm the creator and host of Bring Back V10s. The idea for the show was to share my love for the era of Formula One that defined my childhood and set me on a path that has dominated the rest of my life, which I have since spent working in motorsport. I'm a fan of retro sports podcasts and I wanted to take the things I liked about some of the shows out there that were focusing on other sports and then try to put our own spin on it here at the race. That spin was not to be reliant on famous expert guests, but to slot them in where possible into a format that worked just as well without them. In our rotating core of not-so-famous guests, we strike a balance of fandom and expertise, and what threads all of those elements together is our extensive research. For our most recent series of 12 episodes, the research notes I put together came to 164,000 words, This is what makes Bring Back V10 stand out compared to other nostalgia podcasts. Over the years, even the most famous stories in F1 history become victims of people having selective memories. Facts, moments and quotes get ever so slightly misremembered or gently adjusted over time. And all these years later, the truth has often been lost. For Bring Back V10s, we dive into all of the coverage of an event at the time and then check out what's been uncovered since via as many sources as we can find. Someone might have said one thing about a particular situation in an interview in 2005, but then been more forthcoming with their stories, say, 15 years later, because they're more removed from the time in question. Our job is to gather every grain of information we can on a subject, then string together an episode using the best, most detailed, most informative and entertaining pieces of the puzzle that we can. New episodes are released once a week in two 12-episode runs a year, and so far we've been running for four series. The audience reaction has been incredible. At the end of each series, we ask our listeners to send in questions for us to answer in our final episodes, and over the course of the four series, we've gone from receiving maybe 20 questions first time round to over 100 at the end of the last two series. We've always encouraged our audience to interact with the show using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, which I monitor and engage with on a daily basis. And we recently set up an email address for people to contact the show. And so far, we've received a brilliant mix of questions for the series finale, plus comments and thanks from listeners who just want to tell us how much they enjoy it. My favourite thing about the interaction with our audience is that it's become clear we don't just appeal to one type of F1 fan. There are listeners who are of the same generation as us, who remember the events that we cover, and for them it's not only about sharing that warm, fuzzy nostalgia feeling of reliving how F1 made us feel in our youth, but it's about enhancing their understanding and their memories of that time, digging up things that even the most hardcore of fans might not have known about previously, and bringing fresh perspective that we didn't always have the luxury of at the time. But we're also hearing from so many younger fans who are learning about an era that was before their time and are now becoming immersed in it and obsessed with it. To educate those fans about the years when F1 captivated me as a child and to successfully get across what it was that made me and so many other people fall in love with this sport really does mean the world to me. I always figured we'd do quite well out of the group of fans who already followed this era as we did, but to have engaged the younger fans in the way we have is something I'm incredibly proud of. I feel we've done a great job of mixing what can sometimes be a lot of information in our episodes with a relaxed, entertaining discussion format where our guests can let their guard down. 
The journalists and experts we have on our team at the race can remember what it felt like to be a fan, and our star guests usually learn a thing or two about the stories they were in the thick of, which I always think is a badge of honour for the depth of our research. The main reason I think Bring Back V10s deserves to become an award-winning podcast is that tying together of new and old audiences. Yes, the show is almost exclusively dedicated to F1 stories from 1989 to 2005, which were the years of the popular, screaming, ear-splitting V10 engines. But it's not only for fans who watched F1 during that time. We've made a show that speaks to anyone of any age and of any level of dedication to F1. Putting the show together takes up so much of my time that ultimately if nobody was listening or interacting, I, I would have had to have stopped myself by now to focus on the other parts of my job as editor-in-chief for the race. But right now, I'll always make time for Bring Back V10s. Over the years that the show covers, I went from being a three-year-old pushing toy cars around in front of the TV on Sunday afternoons to being a 19-year-old just starting out in motorsport journalism. The show is my love letter to the thing that was most special to me when I was growing up. And it means the world that we found an audience who feel just the same about it, regardless of if they were watching F1 during those years. Over the rest of this short audio file, we'd like to share a clip with you from when two-time F1 world champion Mika Hakkinen joined us to discuss his most famous overtake on Michael Schumacher in the 2000 Belgian Grand Prix. Mika has discussed this race plenty of times in the past, but usually just for a few sound bites as part of a wider interview. He joined us for 45 minutes just to talk about this one race. And that's the kind of interview that he's never done before. So we were able to go into so much more depth with Mika than he is usually able to on this subject. So thank you for listening to this and I hope you enjoy the clip. You said at the time that when you came out of Radion, you could tell that Michael hadn't taken it flat. So you knew you had a massive run on him. Up ahead, as we mentioned earlier, you were closing on the BAR of Zonta. Ferrari had told Michael, of course, that he was much slower than you on the straights. But Schumacher hoped that on that lap, the toe from Zonta would help him protect the lead for another lap. Zonta's driving down the middle of the road. And at this point, he's unaware that there are two cars behind him. Schumacher assumed there would only be room for two cars side by side. So he thought again that he would be safe. Uh, but at this point, Mika, what's going through your mind? Because from what the research I've been doing, apparently you'd already decided that whatever Michael did, you would do the opposite. Now, Ron Dennis called this one of the greatest overtakes of all time. So tell us how you did it. Well, uh, it was common sense that uh, when when I saw the backmarker, uh, I... Michael was automatically trying to get the toe, but the Sonda was going a little bit too slow. So because he was going so slow, Michael didn't really get the good advantage out of that. Also, the track was, from the left-hand side, was quite dry, and inside line was quite wet. So running on a wet, obviously, it creates a drag. Uh, so it's not too good to run there too much, if you don't have a problem with the tires. I would have been very surprised if the Michael would have taken an inside line and go on the wet side because obviously he kind of breaks so late uh, and it would give me opportunity to go on a dry side. So I was psychologically prepare myself already that way Michael will pass the Zonda on the left-hand side. So I was 
I was if Michael would have decided to go on the right and 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 me psychologically prepared to go also from the right, I think it would have been a mega. It would have been a quite a. It would have been a quite a mess going in that corner. I tell you, and and uh, and uh, luckily, luckily Michael decided to go from the left hand side, and so it opened me to follow the sound a little bit, even it was not the mega advantage, and then to pass him in the right hand side, and and to go to the corner, to to see to see exactly what's gonna happen, but. But it was quite an aggressive move for me to immediately come towards the Michael because that was the only place on a racetrack which was a try line. So I was not able to stay inside, otherwise I would have break my tires and go wide. So I had to come very close to Michael. And I think that that point the Michael realized, oh shit, that's it. I lost the game. <laughs>